Hello, I'm Michael L. Roberts, and we do warmly welcome you to Rhetoricast, Episode 1, a show that explores the ways in which language is used to present, prioritize, and persuade from climate crises to the coronavirus. We launch tonight's show, then, with Part 1 of our exploration of the theories of knowledge and being, considering therein the terms rhetoric and theory, those devices considered outside of theory that may be used to interpret human action and interaction, some language-based characteristics of Winston Churchill as a statesman on the global rhetorical stage, and the rhetorical device of aphorism. So what is rhetoric, and why should we care in 2020? What's the relevance of all that I'm about to share with you in this series? Well, some word and phrase choices are undeniably pleasing to the ear, while others are unattractive and uninspiring. Some sound completely in tune with the sense of their meaning, while others appear to bear no relationship to their meaning whatsoever. Good users of rhetoric will take endless pains to choose the most effective and audibly attractive words and phrases in order to maximize their impact on the minds and emotions of their audience. The sentiments expressed by them can have a musical power and beauty that transcends normal everyday communication and, in this sense, the accomplished user of rhetoric can act as both sculptor and composer. Rhetoric, then, is the art of persuasive or impressive speaking or writing, and the term comes from the Greek word rhetor, which means orator. An orator is simply a skillful speaker who uses a variety of techniques to achieve the desired intellectual and emotional effects upon their audience. The art of rhetoric, therefore, involves identifying and utilizing all the available means of persuasion in any given situation. In classical oratory, there were three main categories of rhetoric. Deliberative, for political and legislative issues. Forensic, for judicial matters. And epideictic, for ceremonial speeches, usually in praise of worthy individuals. Rhetoric was originally recognized and studied by the Greeks because they required the litigants in their justice system to speak for themselves, and this placed the emphasis on the ability to present one's case in the best possible manner. In general terms, rhetoric embraces a number of techniques ranging from the effective presentation of a well-reasoned argument to the unashamed appeal to the feelings of the audience. It involves the use of various rhetorical devices, which are no more than creative ways of using words to maximize their impact. While the use of these patterns and figures of speech obviously predates the creation of rhetoric as a subject, the Greeks categorized them in a very formal and prescriptive manner. So thoroughly did they analyze the language of persuasion 
that whenever a speech is made that is both impressive and convincing, you can guarantee that almost every line of that speech will be found to conform to one rule of rhetoric or another. Unfortunately, the same can often be said about speeches with a spurious purpose, and, as a result, the term rhetoric is more often than not used today in a derogatory manner. This, in our opinion at Cinespeak, is a distorted view of a neutral subject. For, as they say, a motor engine is a device which can be used in both a tractor and a tank. The morality of its usage is down to the people who use it. Another timeless aspect of public speaking and rhetoric is the use of imagery, which, by painting mental pictures related to the subject, stimulates the minds of the audience and conveys ideas and emotions speedily and effectively. At Cinespeak, we work with rhetoric and its associated capacity for imagery at all times, acknowledging the art form's formulaic history, problematic associations and unceasing relevance to the communications of today. Our interest in rhetoric serves our predilection for a broad contextual appreciation of all that we analyse in the here and now, and our methods fuse such appreciation with all manner of pre-existing theoretical and anti-theoretical practices in order to best equip our clients, increasingly those with philanthropic and problem-solving tendencies at the core of their output, to succeed in their communicative endeavours. We turn first tonight, then, in this very first Rhetoricast episode, to a swift Cinespeak categorization of the term theory as it pertains to our chosen areas of communicative focus. In the time-honored tradition of the social sciences, we accept theory as a map, a skeleton, any other simile or metaphor of your choosing, as a, an invisible provider of predicted form and function. We appreciate that long-established theoretical frameworks are considered by some to be present beneath the surface of all historical events, and indeed all present political machinations. UK government policy, for example, may be viewed by some as a demonstration of pre-existing theoretical assumptions about the choices the British public will make and the resulting impact thereof. Realism, liberalism, their modern incarnations, neo-realism and neoliberalism, Marxism, and many more, may all be considered examples of theoretical frameworks by which human action may be predicted and judged, and all are more than well stocked with immovable human loyalists in their own right. We also appreciate, however, that another interpretation of human action and interaction in all things communications, politics, economics, culture, etc., is possible without said theoretical categorization. And in that case, three prominent framing devices come to mind. First, the frame of history and historiography, which seeks to ground our interpretation of human action in so-deemed facts and their meaning through knowledge of the past. 
Historiography then tempers our reliance on those absolutes by examining how it is that we came to discover and assert those said facts in the first place. Second, the frame of reform, which seeks to understand human action through our creation of freshly devised patterns, above and beyond the given empirical evidence of any given moment, to serve and support a never-ending series of abstract ideals. Third, the frame of pragmatic manipulation, which seeks to understand human action as a spontaneous reaction to the issues of the hour as they develop in real time, and the seeking of solutions therein via responsive trial and error. For these framing devices to be considered theory-less, however, suggests that a more rigid, pre-existing theoretical framework was hitherto in place for them to distinguish themselves from and, in some cases, rebel against. At Cinespeak, we argue that it is from here, at this crossroads of contrast, that any and all analytic journeys through the contemporary world of communication must begin. In acceptance, then, of the notion that both theoretical and non-theoretical framing devices are in play, we seek further categorization by which to measure the actions of individual protagonists in all spheres of public life who find necessary cause to wrestle with the contrast and contradictions inherent in such an environment and land upon the following definitions in the process. Number one in our derived list of protagonist types, the historian. The historian infers theory in the form of a historical recital, using a given sequence of past events to demonstrate their own interpretation. Number two, the theoretician. The theoretician dispenses with the aforementioned historical recital and instead begins by making the theoretical framework explicit and then cherry-picks historical events to demonstrate the validity of their pre-chosen theory. Number three, the reformer, or the forward-looking theoretician, if you will. The reformer seeks to fuse the practical concern and fact-based focus of the historian with the hypothetical assuredness of theoretical-based frameworks to assert, in the aggregate, how human action ought to unfold, while openly accepting the manner in which things are actually unfolding. Next up in our initial Cinespeak process, we argue that the 20th century was and is the definitive measure of the failure of political ideology to serve the greatest good. The resulting implementation of institutions to hold the thin red line between civilization and barbarism was, by definition, reactive and therefore not without its pitfalls. A worldwide effort to fix local problems via localized systems, national problems via national systems, and global problems via global systems would ultimately come down to those individual protagonists charged with leading the charge at every level. Given that this show focuses in the main on rhetoric, we'd be hard-pressed not to find cause to include a reference to Winston Churchill here in the first episode, 
and to discuss a rhetorical device in the process. The aforementioned individual protagonists leading the charge are often, at the national and global level, statespeople. And, as a statesman, it may be argued that, with the passage of time, Churchill more resembles our theoretician model now than our historian one. And this would be why. While more concerned with the practicality of the Second World War than any apparent absence of predetermined theory from his leadership approach, the historic record of Churchill's use of language in print, on tape, and on film provides us now with all of his systematic aphorisms that may serve after the event as a theoretical framework of his statecraft. This reading of Churchill as a posthumous theoretician is, of course, only one way in which he may be judged in the context of our content here. And we always encourage clients to use our tools, such as those listed thus far in this episode, as mere starting points for their own adventures of inquiry. We never state that any one interpretation is absolute truth. When seeking to formulate speeches, pitches, and bespoke coaching for our clients, the truth for us is in the process of collaboration, not the teaching of absolutes. We use the term aphorism there, a rhetorical device that can mean anything from a pithy observation containing a general truth to the concise statement of classical principles. A favourite of mine from Hippocrates, which I feel bridges both definitions to some extent there, reads as such, life is short, art long, opportunity fleeting, experience deceptive, judgment difficult. From Churchill, I'd choose, some people regard private enterprise as a predatory tiger to be shot. Others look on it as a cow they can milk. Not enough people see it as a healthy horse pulling a sturdy wagon. Another such aphorism, as Harold Macmillan may or may not have said, feels apposite here, wherein he may or may not have proclaimed, events, dear boy, events. Events find themselves both in service of and detrimental to our historian, theoretician, and reformer models. For the theoretician, events can be utilized as specific instances of proof of their general theory propositions. Conversely, it is possible to argue that events are in and of themselves unique occurrences, which are never to be repeated in the same way. Cue here endless rhyme-based misquotes of Mark Twain, as well as uh, excitable assertions that the precise events of 1920 will reoccur because it is now 2020. If theoretical understanding has been right on events before, that must mean that events are susceptible to theoretical interpretation, and therefore all theory is thereby validated. Conversely, again, if it is believed that events are unique, they are indeed beyond the grasp of any possible form of predictive theoretical framework. Whichever way you choose to slice it, those who believe events serve the cause of theory and those who argue for the opposite both find intellectual cause to suppose 
that some longer-standing general laws brought the capacity for this argument into being and had some determining influence upon their capacity for development. In part two, we'll find ourselves at that second crossroads of general laws, the tellingly divided world of ontology, the theory of being, and epistemology, the theory of knowledge. I'm Michael L. Roberts. You've been listening to Rhetoricast, a Cinespeak and 12th Peer Production 2020. Good luck, and ever onward to you all.